No mai, haere mai. Welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. And this is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and other academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How are things for you? I must apologise for the radio silence recently. As we are all very well aware, life's been tough the last little while to say the least, and I, like so many, have been fairly overwhelmed. Unfortunately, this podcast was one thing to be put on hold for a wee while. However, I'm glad to be up and running again and was able to take the opportunity this week to connect with Associate Professor Tom Buckley and record episode 29. Tom is an Associate Professor at the Susan Wakels School of Nursing at the University of Sydney, Australia. He has qualifications in health sciences, a master's degree in nursing and a PhD in the area of preventative cardiology, where he studied the cardiovascular impact of bereavement on surviving spouses and parents. He'll talk about that in the podcast. Tom is an internationally recognised expert on the interaction between psychological and physiological stress and how this impacts health risk, well-being and human performance. In addition to his academic work, Tom is also the Director of Research and Human Performance at Strive Stronger, a human performance and well-being consultancy. When not at work, Tom can be found on many of Sydney's running and mountain bike trails. In this episode, we talk about how to recognise and take every opportunity, the importance of corridor conversations, which we've kind of been lacking a little bit in the last couple of years, how good work gets done with people you like working with and how important it is to work with people with shared interests. We also discuss what it is like to be a nurse patient in ICU and what a surreal experience it is and how important nurses are to the patient. Tom shares his experience and how this has led to a research project examining what it is like to be either a patient or to care for a patient who is a healthcare professional. And you can find the link to participate in this survey in the written material on the Critical to Your Success page. So grab a cuppa, sit back and have a listen to the interview with Tom Buckley. Tom for joining me today. It's uh, half past three in the afternoon here in Auckland and you're in Sydney currently. Um, So lovely to catch up on Zoom. Hopefully our internet is going to play along with us (laughs) and we won't have any problems. So welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here today to, to talk to us. So I thought we'd just start with um, maybe talking to you. You're obviously with your accent once people get to hear it, not from Sydney. So tell us how you've got to Sydney. Oh, great question. Look, delighted to be here. And thank you uh, for the opportunity to chat. Um, I guess I have an Irish, Anglo-American, Australian accent. If you put it in the order of where I've lived in my life, um, I did grow up in Ireland and then at age 18 went to Greenwich University in London to study nursing Um, and then about a year after completing uh, my studies there I went to the US for two years 
um, and that's where I, I did my intensive care study um, and specialization work. And then I went back to the UK um, and about four years later came to Australia. So I guess I've had that journey of living in four countries and working mm. as a, a registered nurse in three of them. Um, but I came here to Australia in 1998, which was a fantastic time pre-Olympics. Um, it was also a good time career-wise because I'd been working in senior clinical positions and uh, really was looking for what will I do next? And then somewhat great opportunities opened up when I came here to Australia. And cutting a long story short, um, have uh, been able to progress with more academic study, but also move into um, uh, academic positions and I've had some fantastic opportunities. Mm. It's um, recognising those opportunities when they come along, isn't it? And trying to grasp them. It is. It's been open to them. And I've always had a philosophy of taking every opportunity that comes. And it can be a bit of my downfall because I like to be doing a lot of different things because you never know mm -hmm. which one of them is really going to light your fire. Problem is that most of them generally get me excited. And I guess <laughs> I guess one of the things that I, I think I'm quite good at is actually getting things up and going and getting on with things and making things happen. Uh, I think the thing I'm really poor at is finishing any of them. Um, so I was going to ask that <laughs> so i've always had to surround myself with and work with people who uh really enjoy project management really enjoy the finishing projects or like to take on projects that are conceptualized and um, started and maybe even funded and see their opportunity for growth in that and, and create opportunity for others i'm never so fussed about towards the back end, of course, the quality and everything has to be done, but I always like to see the opportunities for others then to really shine out of that because that's the opportunities I had along my journey. You know, I didn't create every opportunity or project that I've actually be, maybe lead author or take the credit for later. You know, research is done in a team and curricula mm. are generated in teams, but often one person is leading um, but I, I often think if we can shuffle the deck chairs around, we create a lot of opportunity for a lot of people in everything we do. Mm. Yeah. But that, guess, fit, um, that, fit, that finishing bit is often the, by then I'm usually excited by the next project. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the problem, isn't it, though? I think, you know, as a researcher, as an academic, something else comes along. It's like, oh, I must start that next. And yeah. you kind of yeah. forget that you're still finishing several other things or, yeah. How do you, as I guess, you know, particularly as a maybe a newer researcher or, um, you know, a newer even staff nurse looking at starting something different, how do you find a team? It's a great question, isn't it? And, um, you know, there's, it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit like I did a lot of work in emergency response, still do, and a lot of work in resuscitation and um, you know, you could ask that question, how do you find a team when somebody has a cardiac arrest? Um, you know, the team suddenly arrives, evolves. And in some scenarios, those, those individual clinicians will know each other 
clinically or and will have some idea of their skill set and in other scenarios they won't the team will be formed with a particular purpose and I think research is a little bit like that I think some teams just grow organically through you know you're, you're a clinician and you have an idea and you speak to another clinician and um, you know and sometimes I'll refer you to uh, either uh, somebody who's a clinician researcher or somebody who's an academic researcher and I think for me, that's how it happened. For me, I, I, you know, somebody said to me, when did I start research? I said, well, I've always done research. And there was, well, what do you mean you've always done research? Well, I've always thought like a researcher because I'm always asking the question, why, how, how can we do things better? I'm always thinking, what's the best evidence? Is there evidence? You know, I think you have to ask yourself first, is there evidence before you say, what's the best evidence? And so I've always done that across my life in everything, whether it's my sports or whether it's my clinical work or whether it's my academic work. I always did that. Uh, but for me, when I came to Australia, I, I went to see the professor of nursing. Um, well, I was working in cardiology at the time. I'd come from ICU many years. I was working in cardiology. And the professor of cardiology was working very late in the middle of the night one night in a, in a cardiac catheter lab. Um, where we were doing angioplasty on a patient having a myocardial infarction. And he said to me, he said, said, Tom, he said, have you met the professor of nursing? And I was like, no. I was going, well, she's in the States right now on sabbatical, but when she comes back, you must go and meet her. And, um, and that was the sort of introduction to the whole idea of being a clinician and actually engaging with a, a professor of nursing who was leading a lot of research. So it was just literally knocked on her door and said, um, you know, uh, Professor McKinley, you know, said who I was. And, and she was so welcoming and, and warm. And then she was going, what can I do for you? And I said, I'd really like to find out how I can do your job one day. <laughs> and, and I was just being honest because yeah. I, was, I was really fascinated that um, these opportunities existed. And she was like, well, first step is you actually need to uh, you know, engage in some research education. And so that started into a master master of um, what we now call a master of philosophy, but it was a master of nursing by, by thesis. And then that created the first opportunity then to research with some really renowned cardiology researchers and learn from them. And when I finished that, then the opportunity came to actually do the research I really wanted to do, so which led on to my PhD. So I think I think it's conversations is how you find research teams. And yeah, yeah in my current role as a, a, a director of research education at Sydney University, I get a lot of people coming to me who want to do research degrees, and it, I think it's the same conversation of you know what. What's your track record of expertise? What's your areas of interest? How much reading have you done on it? Because if they haven't read up on the area or they haven't got a track, it's going to be very hard to attract a supervisor. And before mm. they go and have that conversation, like the one I had with Professor McKinley, um, you kind of really need to know what you're interested in, what where your expertise mm. is. And you, your expertise might be clinical. You might be absolute clinical expert on one aspect of care you might not recognize that that's exactly the expertise you need to then be able to research that aspect of care you just need somebody with the methodological expertise to work with you and to build a framework around that I think you know putting yourself out there is so difficult isn't it um, but that is often the first step to meeting people who are like-minded or like you say can see that you are interested and and keen 
on heading down that track and pathway. Absolutely. And, and these things start with conversations. I think the corridor conversations are the, the really important conversations. I would say every research study I've been involved in um, has usually stemmed out of conversations. But the other thing that, you know, often it's a conversation in the corridor, often it's a shared mm. interest that you remember, oh, yeah, no, um, you know, uh, Jim, he was really interested in that topic or um, somebody else, you know, has done some work in the area. And it's just these conver organic conversations. But I think the biggest thing is that for any aspiring researchers is that you, you good research gets done when you work with people that you like working with. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you can, I've worked with some, absolute you know, geniuses and really accomplished researchers that, that, that are impossible to work with. Mm. <laughs> and it's very, very hard as a junior researcher to find yourself to grow to if you're constantly on the back foot, if you're constantly chasing your tail. So I think it's, you know, it, it is having a shared interest both on the topic and the methodology but it's also working with people that you like working with, that you feel valued, that you can contribute and that listen to you because mm. I could give you example after example where, where the wild ideas or the what I call the mad questions. You know, I always tell my students to look out for the mad questions because that's often where the, <laughs> it's often where the genus thinking is. A person may actually be two steps ahead of you and it might mm. make no sense now, but write it down because they, they're thinking of something that, um, either a reviewer or an examiner or, or a yeah. consumer of your research is going to be asking later at some point. Exactly. Yeah, we were talking about this last week, actually. I was teaching our research postgraduate research paper here and, and just talking about how often your research questions come out of the most unexpected conversations or, um, you know, like you say, they're those chance encounters, um, either with patients or with colleagues. Um, and how we've sort of missed out on that in the last two years due to COVID and um, all the restrictions and lockdowns and possibly how that's influencing some of the research that we do also and the research pipeline. Oh, I think it definitely is. And I, I think we have to make um, different efforts or, or do things in a different way in the current environment, um, even though we're we, we, you know, we're trying to function in a normal world. It, it's not normal post-COVID mm. and maybe never will be. And so I think we have to accept that that communication is now done in different ways and not always face-to-face -face in the corridor. But I think mm. social media platforms and I think particularly Twitter allow you to um, create some exposure or engagement with experts in the area that you would like to engage with or that you need to uh, make contact with. So I think there are other ways of doing it, but I think that mm. organic from the ground up clinical ideas type research, um, it is hard. And it's also hard because in a lot of clinical areas now, um, you know, the, 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 the work demand versus the workforce is probably never mm. been more imbalanced. Now in my whole 30 odd years of, of being a registered nurse, I never remember a time where 
nurses generally didn't consider their workload to be high. I never remember a time where where nurse mm. <laughs> nurses were not in shortage in any country. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I went to work in the States was because there was massive opportunities. I mean, you wouldn't believe the money we were paid to go and work there as 22-year-olds because mm. they had such desperate shortages. Um, and then when I came to went back to the UK, it was the same thing, came to Australia. So we've always had that. I don't think we've ever been ever had a surplus of nurses no. in my career but I think this is exceptional the last couple of years and the the flow on effect on the workforce so therefore I think these things do influence how we organically do things but I, I still think there's a lot of scope for innovative teams to collaborate in different ways mm. um mm. And, and I still think, you know, for junior researchers, when I say junior, I mean, you know, often a very senior clinicians who are on the beginning of a, a research journey. So I don't mean as in junior, but as in early mm. re- career researchers. I, I think, too, is just knowing your topic. And sometimes you'll know that because you've been interested in your whole life. And sometimes you'll know that because you've experienced something and it still lights a fire in you. So I think just... You know, when people come to me and they want to do a PhD or a Master of Philosophy and they want to do it in, um, you know, uh, oral hygiene, but they've spent their whole life working in a, 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 I use oral hygiene just as an example, but they spent their whole, <laughs> li- whole life working in cardiology. I mean, my first question is, um, you know, where is your track record? And suddenly they told mm. me they're interested in periodontal disease because of his link with cardiovascular disease. And I go, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but when they yeah. come to me and they say they, that they're, in, you know, they're interested in oral hygiene because they've just had some experience at the dentist and it's got not, <laughs> nothing to do with their clinical or track history. I, you know, I really do work hard to say, well, well, well you really got to develop some track here. You know, you can't, you know, and I only use oral hygiene. I, I could I could have said a million <laughs> things. I just don't want to offend anyone. Exactly. Um, and I think that's the thing is, it was sometimes people will come to me. I've got a couple of one student at the moment who's just about to graduate with a PhD. She just passed last week, and it's like, you know, when she came to me, she just had this burning desire around a topic, and it was actually a topic that I'd already written a research protocol for. So it was like, uh-huh. oh, you've just come to the right person. Um, <laughs> And, and so sometimes you just get the right timing and per- yeah. and she had done so much reading on it that it was like, oh, I wish you were here when I was writing the protocol. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and the same happened in my PhD where, where once the opportunity came, it was actually something I've been interested in for about 30 years. So sometimes it's just timing and, mm. you know, you talk about policy windows opening. I think the same happens in research. Mm. Yeah. So tell us about your PhD. What did you investigate and how did you do it? Um, what did I investigate? I, I investigated what what's commonly called broken heart syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's what's called in the media. And uh, that's what people tend to commonly mm. refer to. What I actually investigated was the mechanisms behind the increased incidence of myocardial infarction in spouses um or parents of uh patients who die and Mm. so it's you know when when i mean we kind of know this through life experiences that when one one spouse passes away there's a you know it's about 16 fold increased risk in the other spouse passing away in the next couple of days and that risk got drops down to at six months to you know about 60 percent increased risk and then it comes back up again around the one year anniversary 
And I've always been really, really interested in that. I, I, I'm a, a tragic U2 fan. Um, <laughs> yeah, tra- tragic, tragic, uh, so tragic every time I go back home. We always, my brother and I go on a pilgrimage to Bono's house. We know he's never there, but, you know, it just oh, feels You never like, know, one day he might be. Yeah, no, I've had friends go there and meet him. So I'm like, well, I keep doing it my whole life. One day I'll get lucky. Or maybe you should <laughs> never meet your heroes. I don't know. But I was yeah, really, really, really aware that his mother passed away at her father's funeral I, I think the story is she either passed away at the funeral or he walked she walked in the door and passed away and she died of a subarachnoid hemorrhage um to the best mm. of my knowledge I was just always fascinated with that sort of that phenomena that you you know you would lose somebody close to you and then um you know you, your health would be at risk itself and then clinically I, I'm sure many listeners here have nurse patients who have either been acutely ill or um, passed away and the next thing they have the one of the family members in emergency or up in the coronary care unit as I remember many cases so I was always interested in that sort of heart mind emotion risk uh, link and so when in my master's I looked at what people do when they have heart attack symptoms myocardial infarction symptoms and I, I really got interested in the sort of cognitive frameworks around the, the sort of emotional cognitive influences on how we respond and that uh, just been really interested in in what this emotional physiological link I, I did a science degree after my nursing degree so I had this physiological sort of interest in in physiology and 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 I guess that attracted me to work in ICU as well where you know I was able to sort of satisfy my hunger for understanding physiology mm-hmm. um, and so it was really a, a, a corridor discussion with um, uh, Professor Jeffrey Toffler who's a, a cardiologist and Professor Roger Bartrop, uh, God rest his soul, who's passed away but who was a uh, physician turned psychiatrist and the very first person to study um, immunology during bereavement, the very first person in 1977 to report in the Lancet that the immune system is imbalanced during bereavement. And so he and Professor Toffler were working at North Shore Hospital and um, I wasn't long finished my master's and uh, you know, the corridor conversations from Professor McKinley, Professor Nursing saying, oh, you, know, you really should talk to Tom. And she's saying to me, you really should talk to Jeff and Roger because they've been talking about this idea. And as soon as I heard it, I, I, I had knocked that door down. I, you know, I, I was in, in their office the next day and I didn't walk mm. out. I didn't walk out until they were committed to me and I was committed to them. Um, what I didn't know at the time was they were interviewing several candidates because it was a scholarship um, funded PhD. You know, the sal- my salary was going to be funded. And I didn't know that at the time, mm. um, but they were interviewing other um, professionals from other disciplines and trying to work out who is the best person to do what was a very complex study to recruit um, uh, family members, uh, spouses or parents of patients who had died in ICU and to start physiological monitoring, take bloods, do heart rate variability, 24 hour mm. blood pressure, you know, to literally do a full physiological and psychological um, assessment on them uh as soon as possible after the death and to study them out to three and six three and six months to look at what are the psychological which we knew a lot about the psych what to expect psychologically but also to look at what are the health behaviors and particularly the physiological um disruptions that occur that Mm. might explain this this 
uh, broken heart uh, phenomena, not to be mixed up with Takasubo, uh, mm. you know, which is a different, a different scenario. Um, and so I did that and uh, it was, you know, I, won't, I won't deny it was very, very hard work. It was very hard to approach people, mm. you know, the, the day or the day after their, their spouse had died. Um, it was or their child had died in many cases I was going to ask that yeah Yeah. you know it's um obviously one of the worst times to be trying to approach um family for participation in a study like this how do people respond yeah look I I amazingly we, we we wrote a paper on this um I approached it very similar to how you would approach organ donation of which I had a lot of experience as a charge nurse in ICU uh, you know around giving people the opportunity to consider participation and that was a mindset um, that, that was a difficult difficult to bring people around to that mindset not the potential participants but everybody else like everybody was you can't do that ethics committee you know had a million twos and froze until eventually it was you know, we as a team said, well, you know, these are adults who we are providing mm. an opportunity to consider participation. Everybody seems to presume that we're burdening them. Everybody mm. seems to presume that we're going to do harm. Now, I can see how it would look that way. You're going into somebody's home the day after their child has passed away or the spouse has passed away. Um, that takes a lot of sensitivity. And, and I can see... In many ways, I can see why people were thinking the way they were and the risks mm-hmm. around that. And there were risks. I mean, some of the scenarios I walked into, um, you could not make this stuff up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it is incredibly um, privileged to be in people's homes at the worst time in their life. But what I discovered underneath it, because 60% of the participants I approached to come in the study came into the study, that study. So 80 80 individuals wow. and 74 spouses and six parents um, came into study and allowed me to come into their home within a few days. And, you know, the monitoring too was not insignificant. I mean, the, you know, the, the, when I do studies, I've just done another stu- similar study on relatives of ICU patients. You know, when, when, when we do monitoring now, we, we picture very low, low uh, invasive monitors, you know, that, that, Mm. micro micro monitors i call them now you know <laughs> but but these these um participants they wore a halter monitor for 24 hours they wore a 24-hour blood pressure monitor taking their blood Goodness. pressure every, every half hour over or, or yeah. during the day and an hour at night they allowed me to take bloods um and they filled out quite a lot of questionnaires um you know and and so they they allowed us to do an amazing amount what i discovered was that what a lot of participants said to me at the end of the study and some were quite sad when the study was over and I understood that because I was a bit mm. of a link could see mm. me as a link back to the hospital even though I'd never cared for their loved ones um they said they, they said thank you thank you for a few things one giving them the opportunity to give something back so that was a mm. strong theme and the second one Thank you for giving me the opportunity to make up my own mind because, you know, in a, I would say the majority of the, the refusals for the project were not the, the eligible participants. It was actually their children and usually their daughters. And I 
absolutely apologize <laughs> to females out there um, because there were sons as well, but it was mostly, you know, just a fact that statistically it was mostly daughters who blocked us from access to the relatives going, oh, no, 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 you, no my, my mom wouldn't like that. And, mm. and, and I, I mean, I never challenged it to say, well, have you asked your mom if she would like to do this? Because, yeah. you know, it's not the time to do it. Um, but a lot and again, of that, with the best of intentions, probably. Yeah. And I think the, I think many, you know, I think sibling or children in particular are turn very protective of their parents when one passes mm. away i mean i'm sure i've experienced that in my own family um mm. and so they have all the best intentions in the world but i lost count of the amount of um participants who you know when the children would finally leave the room once they'd suss me out when i came to their home and they mm -hmm. realized that i wasn't there to do any harm and they'd potter off to the kitchen to do something you kind of have hear them listening or looking in and I, I was comfortable with that I always encouraged them to ask any question to be present if they, you know that was never an issue um but the the you know a participant would talk, come say I told come here come here they would go, go this is the first time I'm actually able to talk for myself you know <laughs> so yeah. th there was a lot of insights into you know what is just normal protective human behavior but to ask you, ask you a question, we, we mapped from that study, I managed to, in my thesis, I mapped the physiological disruptions that happen across the inflammatory immune, um, you know, brain regulation of heart, heart rate, heart rate variability, blood pressure, um, you know, uh, coagulation um, factors, and looked at what, what intensity of bereavement and what are some of the predictors of that intensity that then resulted in physiological disruption. When we look at excess deaths during bereavement, about 50, just over 50% of them tend to be cardiovascular in origin, um, but there's also increased cancer risk and there's also increased risk of self-harm and other, other risks as well. So we tried to map that out. And I think actually we did a, a I mean, we, it has, the study hasn't been repeated. I really would like to see others repeat it because that was that select sample, you know, of 80 individuals. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I do think we could extend that if we had bigger studies with more diverse populations. Mm -hmm. um, and the elephant in the room for us always is what, you know, we, we don't want to medicalize bereavement. We've never wanted to, um, uh, never wanted to interfere with the bereavement response, because I think most of us would agree that, the emotional response to bereavement is is actually therapeutic in in a way. You know, it helps people to move and adjust. I, I never say get over because I don't think people get over loss. No. You know, in this, but it helps people to adjust and make sense. And 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 actually, my own experiences is you know, and people listeners may um, you know reflect on theirs. But in my own experience, actually, I think grief is necessary, and the emotional suffering is actually something that for me in my own experience of loss of both parents, something that you almost needed to have. Mm. Um, so we, our intention was never to block that. And as a matter of fact, studies that have tried to interfere with that, interfere with that, you know, with psychotherapy, uh, enforced psychotherapy have often done more harm than good. Um, mm. But what we always believe is that people should be able to walk through that emotional um, a grief experience 
but they don't necessarily need to have a heart attack while it's happening. Mm. Uh, so we've been, you know, we've tested interventions to actually reduce the physiological turbulence, but allow the normal, a little bit like um, Professor Toffler always talks about, you know, uh, using a tarp, a tarpaulin, you know, you, 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 you can be outdoors in the rain, but you don't necessarily need to get wet or you can walk with an umbrella over you. And that's kind of the, the mm. philosophy for what we've been trying to achieve in our studies. Mm, very wise words. And I think, you know, it's truly remarkable um, to be able to enroll that number of participants after, you know, assumedly what has often been a highly stressful situation for them and possibly very unexpected situation. Um, and all following on from sort of chance meetings between uh, you and the professors. So, you know, it just goes to show how these things can unravel um, in a good way. Yeah, and I, you know, there's a lot of factors at play there. I, I've been fascinated with the the concept of, uh, you know, that, that whole concept of emotions driving physiology. Um, yeah, and and heart rate and anxiety is a good example. I've always been fascinated that when you raise somebody's heart rate, they got anxious, but when they're anxious, the heart rate comes up. So this bi-directional mm-hmm. relationship between uh, physiology and psychology you know we're not heads on a stick and i think we, we, mm-hmm. our, our the medical model has has functioned that way in uh, separating the head from this from the rest of the body and i've never seen it that way and i think most nurses don't see it that way um mm-hmm. so i've always you know for me for me it just made sense to study it holistically and look at those interactions but actually having that interest having the scientific background having the clinical background of working with people in that environment during end-of-life care and um, organ donation and then having those corridor corridor conversations but also having established a track record in my master's with a different team and shown that willing to learn capable to learn capable to finish a thesis they were all factors that allowed me to to do and I was very privileged I, I had a full lecturer's level salary while I did my whole PhD and mm. in the final final year Heart Research Australia kindly um, uh, gave me another scholarship and then I was able to absolutely do nothing for the final six months but write the thesis so once again all those things didn't happen by accident um, yeah. but but you just keep building your track conversations going to functions and promoting um, the research, going to functions, speaking to people, and just being humble to the whole process, I think is is the, the factors that for most people will result in them engaging in the type of research they want to do. Mm. Oh, no, very true. And so have you um, followed on with this train of research since completing your PhD, or have you developed new areas of interest? Yeah, probably yes to both. Um, we the logical intervention after from my PhD was to reduce cardio, you know, hemodynamic turbulence, um, and to reduce prothrombotic factors in the body because they were the two factors that that were contributing most to the cardiovascular risk. So um, we recruited, uh, did a randomized controlled trial using low dose beta blocker and aspirin um, to to block those or certainly reduce those physiological pathways. And we showed that that does work. And we did a six week therapy post bereavement 
and um, uh, therapy did exactly what we expected it to do with no side effects, which is really important because many people would think giving beta blockers to people during depression is not a good idea. Um, but the evidence doesn't mm. support that. And the evidence of bereavement from our study absolutely doesn't support that. Um, that, as a matter of fact, uh, anxiety and depression um, appeared to be lower in the uh, intervention group over time and remain mm. lower. Um, the, the, the biggest thing was that there was no adverse psychological reaction, but there was a reduction in the physiological response. Things like blood pressure are really important because we know from studies that even at four years, blood pressure can remain elevated following close bereavement. We see that in family members of soldiers killed in combat at four years, um, that are very, very high blood pressures. Mm. What, we saw, what we saw by giving a very, very low dose of beta blocker and aspirin in the early phase is that we, when it came off therapy at, um, at six weeks, the blood pressure never rebounded back up, whereas in the controls, it, it remained up like it had been and stayed up. So it does mm. it does add some weighting to if you can intervene early. And I think that my line of thought now is that I think anticipatory grief is mm. probably the period to, um, the, to intervene. And that led me to a study that we've just finished and uh, we've just published the first one paper i think the second one's got minor revisions going in this week and then got two or three more come from where we because of that anticipation the interest in anticipatory grief i became very very interested in um the relatives of the patients who survive as well and mm. so we did a, a similar study um where i've just recruited um, 60 relatives of ICU, ICU and coronary care patients, um, spouses, parents, and we've compared them to community controls, looking at the physiological disruption after admission, unplanned admission, mm. and uh, and then looking some, use, using more advanced technologies, less invasive technologies, but also looking at heart rate, heart rate variability, blood pressure, and all the inflammatory, immune, prothrombotic factors. So mm. I think. One of the really fascinating things, and, and, and you, you might be know this yourself, is that when a patient's admitted to ICU, you, if you look at statistically the outcome for the, for, um, uh, the close relatives, particularly spouses, um, the percentage of psychological morbidity at six months is no different in the relatives of those who survived versus those who, who passed away. Mm. But if you, if you look at the percentage who have complicated grief at six months and you compare it to the percentage of gross post-traumatic symptoms in the surviving, from surviving relatives, they're very, very similar, somewhere around a sort of 25%. So it's, it does seem that the admission to ICU, the unplanned nature, the critical illness um, is a factor. And so um, we've just finished that study. And, and at the moment we're doing a study, I think you know, uh, listeners may not know, but two years ago, I ended up a patient in ICU myself and uh, following a mountain bike accident and uh, with, with you know spinal and chest injuries all resolved now, thank God. Um, but that, that got me even more interested on the impact of hospitalization, but also the mm. impact of being a health professional as a patient in an ICU. Um, and the people caring for me, a lot of them knew me through my, you know, 
been working there and research there, but, mm. but also just got me interested in another side to <laughs> the impact of hospitalization. And so, so yeah, so carrying on that research, um, very much so. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I'm very interested in that, that, um, uh, experience that people have particularly around a hospital environment so tell us a little bit about your experience what was it like being an icu nurse as an icu patient it was it, it was a double-edged sword to be honest because you're out on a sunday morning riding a mountain bike um, you make a mess of something on a mountain bike and the next thing you're on your back and You've got a hemothorax, a pneumothorax. You've got, you know, seven ribs broken front and back. You've got your clavicle broken and you've got eight spinal processes broken. You're lying on the ground and it's like you're in survival mode. And mm-hmm. then then you go off to a, a wonderful place of hallucination after doses of ketamine and morphine. Mm-hmm. And you wake, you wake up in a CT scanner and you kind of realize that, you know, you, you're still here. And the next thing, then you wake up in an intensive care unit with um, a couple of your ex-students looking at you. <laughs> so it was a <laughs> surreal experience. And then you have a, a, a colleague that you know very well, medical specialist, um, standing outside the door and they're mumbling. And so you kind of, a bit of a surreal experience. But the realisation when you know what your injuries are, that they're recoverable, you know, broken bones will, will heal. It's just going to take time. Um, that that I'm not going to be paralyzed, um, that these tubes will all come out and you kind of have this realistic expectation that you will recover. It actually became quite a a humbling experience because what it really did, and I think I'd forgotten it, it it's been a a while since I've done hands-on clinical work in ICU. Um, You might be around around the ICU, but I'm not you know, 12 hours at the bedside like I used to be was just how um, important nurses are and it just it was humbling just the, the how important everything they did just all got brought back to me every every reason why I became a nurse became obvious to me again so that so that was the first real learning experience from it I think the other learning experience for me was that I could see how hard it was for others to look after me and so I became really conscious of not being demanding, you know, almost afraid to press the buzzer if I needed something. Um, you know, uh, I remember I had urine retention and it just, you know, I thought, oh, I just lasted out, you know. And, and, you know, I mean, I should have been on that buzzer six hours earlier so that I could be categorized and relieve it, you know, but you yeah. kind of didn't want this fear of, oh, I'll be the troublesome nurse or uh, or they'll just mm. be Tom, Tom being demanding or and in some ways, it, it, it did influence, I think it did influence decisions, because I think people presumed that I was going to make decisions, you know, I needed to have operations, there needed to be decisions around that. I got septic from the cannula on my arm, uh, but I was a bit slow in, in bringing attention to it, because I didn't want to be the disturbing person, and it was actually yeah. you know, my wife who noticed it, and then you become delirious because you're septic, and so I think I think there is a complexity to being in what we call a nurse patient. Um, I think it's it is a double-edged sword in that you 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 want to be the model patient. Um, you don't want to be the know-it-all. Um, well, mm. I did. I didn't. Um, you want to allow the carers to care for you so that you get the best care, 
but but you kind of know where all the you know, all the cracks are in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you're judging people's competence with the ones you don't know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and that's really tricky. Um, so I think it's 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 multifactorial. Um, we're, we're doing a study at the moment. The, uh, when I looked at the literature, I wrote an editorial in Australian Critical Care on this. When I looked at the literature, I couldn't find any studies on it. Um, mm. Since we've done a, a scoping review on it, I found eight studies of nurses, but they're nearly all from the cancer arena, and they're all small studies of three or four people. Mm. Um, so we're, we're doing what we think will be the largest study on it and capturing what nurses' experiences are being patients in different environments. Um, and, and I think, you know, I don't know about, about you, Rachel, but I've never had any specific education on how to approach caring for another healthcare professional. No, no, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, you sort of get taught about how to look after a whole range of um, people who come through your environment and, um, you know, probably never have really thought um, about the need for education for this. Um, but, you know, having, well, A, been a patient, I uh, agree totally with everything you say about just trying to be the non-troublesome, um, you know, compliant patient in bed, whatever. Um, but also how difficult it is to look after your colleagues if they come through or other healthcare professionals too coming through your ICU, which I've had to do a couple of times. Um, but how difficult it is for both sides of the equation. Yeah, totally. And, and I, you know, my presumption was that I was going to get better. My presumption was that I would be, I would recover. Um, mm. and, and I'd had that experience as a 12 year old, don't mind sharing, when I was 12, I had Hodgkin's disease. So I was on an oncology ward for six months back in Dublin. Mm. So where my sort of real love for nursing came from. I just, the nurses were just, yeah, they were just like gods to me when I was 12 mm-hmm. and mm. you know, not, didn't know if I'd make 13. And so that, you know, to, that that's where my whole appreciation of, of what nursing really is, what life really is. And so I'd had that experience before of being a patient of uncertainty, but you, for me, there was just no, so there's no, there's no other option here on You will get better. You will recover. Mm. And, and so that was my mindset from the word go. And yeah, as soon as, as soon as I could breathe independently, then I'm out of bed, you know, and they were like, but you shouldn't be mm. able to walk, but I am, I'm <laughs> out of bed. I'm, you know, so for me, and I guess I used to be a, 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 I mean, I still am an athlete, but my whole life I've been an athlete from the age of 13 on when I did recover, you know, I've been a, a competitive runner and, and cyclist. So for me, it was just another goal to achieve, but it is very, very complex because you, a simple thing like when I was breeding, you know, uh, independently, you know, I, they moved me from a, a bed area that was in front of the nurse's station to one that was definitely out of the way. Let's put it that way in the <laughs> ICU. My interpretation of that was that I was lying in bed watching them all day at work and it was probably unnerving for them. <laughs> Their, their, yeah. their, their response to that was they were moving me to a quieter, more private area. And when we'd all the bed areas were so independent rooms. Uh-huh. Um, but, but as the patient, I, I, I was deeply upset, I, you know, for, for a little while, deeply upset that they had seen me as perhaps the, the annoyance. Um, I've spoken mm. to those colleagues since, and I, they absolutely assure me that was not the case. So I, I think there's, yeah. there, there's an openness to, um, misinterpretation of what's going on when you know the system and even if you know the players. Mm. There's there's a misinterpretation of what 
would be seen as being uh, the, the the needy the needy nurse or the, if you mm. were you know about the same with doctors so a little bit more research on doctors experiences which is interesting and what you find in the literature with doctors as patients is that they they want more of a say in the medical management of themselves um and right. you don't, yeah that, and, and i'll be interested to see what we find in in our study because that that work's not been done with nurses um but for me the little things were what jumped out you know when, when i was septic and sweating buckets out I, I remember uh one of the nurses coming in and just using a tepid sponge on my forehead oh that was magic that was yeah. absolute magic you know i remember the first time i uh was out of bed and went for a shower i mean i you know I needed to be propped on a on a commode type chair in the shower, you know. Um, mm. And one of the the nurses that did it was was a, a former ICU student at uni, you know. And 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 he was so embarrassed. And I'm like, <clears throat> I'm like, you know, no, don't, don't be embarrassed. This is, you know, I, this I am so pleased you're doing this. Do you know what I mean? It's like this mm. is this, this mm. is so important to me. That was even more important than all the technical care I got. So I think. The importance of those little mm. things and the kindness that was shown and the time that people sat down and said, you know, how are you doing, Tom? Um, there were a lot of people who didn't do that because they they didn't see it necessary to give any psychological care. It was like, you know, the antibiotics are in, the oxygen's titrated, um, the mm. technical stuff's done. And then, oh, mm. yeah, Tom, that's Tom. He'll so, you know, he what, what can we offer him? Whereas other, and it was often the junior, the more junior ICU nurses that, would come in and sit down and say how are you doing you know um mm. do you need anything what can we do and, and that was really eye-opening for me which has led me to this study because mm. if we're doing true person-centered care it shouldn't matter whether i was a nurse or not no but it should matter that we determine people's knowledge and needs on an individual basis and not make any assumptions and i think we can people can be intimidated if it's a uh, you know, a nurse or a doctor or somebody they know, you know, they, they can become intimidated and be afraid to ask those things or make mm. presumptions. So I think, I think there is a little bit of recalibration we need to do as clinicians, but as patients, it's hard to know how to act as well. So I'll be really mm. fascinated in people's experiences when we finish this study. Mm. So tell us about the study because um, any of the listeners could go on and um, complete your study. So tell us how they could do that. Um, absolutely. So um, perhaps in our show notes, perhaps we can put a link to the survey if that's okay. Um, yes. The survey is open. Most or, definitely. Or even put a link a link to um, uh, to my email address so I can send people the link. So the stu- survey is open. Um, the Australian College of Quick Care Nurses um, webpage has got a link to the survey there on the homepage. So you can look it up through the Australian College of Critical Care Nurses website. Um, and it's a, it's a online survey. It has some um, closed and open questions in it. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Um, I think if you, this, the survey is interested in people who have been a patient but the second half of the survey is interesting in those that have cared for other healthcare professionals. Mm. So um, even if you haven't been a patient, I'd really like to hear your experience of caring for other healthcare professionals. Mm. Um, so Australian College of Quick Care webpage. Um, otherwise, um, perhaps we can put a link to the notes um, uh, for this podcast. Mm, definitely. 
and the survey will be open for another, for where we're now in the middle of July, will be open for another four weeks. Super. Oh, yeah. You have to have been a patient in the ICU or anywhere in the system? Anywhere in the system, either being a, pa- a nurse patient in the system or being a registered nurse anywhere in the health system who has cared for other um, healthcare professionals in the last three years. Um, and we're just interested in your experience. Mm. Oh, it'll be really interesting. You know, as you say, I think we sort of make so many assumptions about, um, you know, people who are healthcare professionals, if we're caring for them and what they need, what they don't need, how they will react, how they will possibly just get on with it themselves, um, that this will give us some really important information. I think so. I, I, I compared a little bit to being a pilot who's a passenger on an airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's a little bit of evidence that pilots don't make great passengers. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure Formula One drivers don't make great passengers in cars either. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we, depending on what we find in this study, I mean, my, my experience is that from my own experiences is, is that um, uh, perhaps nurses don't make great patients either. And, um, you know, <laughs> uh, or, or maybe we, we, maybe we do make great patients, but maybe that's not, the way we act may not be the best way. And, and I, I, I do know of colleagues who've been patients who've said to me, oh, I never told them I was a nurse. And I find that I, I'm really fascinated with why they would not declare that as much as they would declare it. Um, and, mm. and I get those, those things fascinate me. You know, is it better, you know, is it better to be a, a, a consumer of health um, anonymous to your profession or, when we do declare our profession, are, are we expecting special favors or something? Or are we are we trying to put people on notice to make sure that we don't fall in the cracks? That that's my feeling, but I, I really don't know. And I, I think you mm. know, when, when I was a patient, I had no choice because um everybody knew and everybody's head that knew me mm. was putting their head in the door to have a look at how beat up I was. Um yeah, hopefully <laughs> yeah. in a in, in uh, you know in, with concern um mm. but but you also could be on show and mm. um your your dignity disappears and so that you know there's a lot of factors you know I remember the first time i walked back into that unit um you know as a six months later when when i was you know able to walk back in there you, you know the embarrassment level the, that mm. I felt was probably not not necessary. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I was yeah. the only one. Yeah. I was the only one thinking about it. The people who knew me were just delighted that I was well, and but yeah. I felt like all oh, my dignity had been disappeared. And so I think yeah. I think it's highly complex, and it would seem to me that it would be worse to be a patient in your own workplace than perhaps to be a patient mm. in somewhere that you don't know. On the other hand do you have more people looking out for you when you're in your workplace mm-hmm. than if you're in a, in a place where you're anonymous? So it's a fascinating topic. And mm. I think the medical board of Australia have made some statements on this around doctors having their own doctor and around the fact that doctors shouldn't make different decisions when they're caring for other doctors, because they should always be giving the best standard of care to start with. And if they're making different decisions, could they be mm. making wrong decisions or could they, or does that mean they're not making the best decisions with other patients? It's a fascinating topic, isn't it? Um, mm. oh, whereas, it is. yeah. whereas we don't have those 
those levels in the, uh, I, I can only speak for the Australian standards, but we don't have those discrete statements in the Australian standards. I mean, of course, we should all treat everybody equal and apply the same principles. And mm. um, but, but actually, it's not spelled out when it comes yeah. to your colleagues. And, and I'm still not sure if it should be spelled out. And I guess that's why we're doing the research to see, is this really a problem? Mm. It's often, you know, our, our sort of beginnings of our other um, research projects after this, isn't it? Trying to understand if there is a problem or not. Yeah, um, yeah. And I guess the other group that jumps out for me is um, healthcare professionals who are relatives of a patient um, and their experience of being that, you know, um, the nurse daughter. Um, and, you know, again, how you try and sort of cover that up or um, whether you promote the fact that you are or not. Yeah, we were very interested in that. Um, we, we've, in our scoping review, we found no literature on that. And um, I sort of drew boundaries on this, mm. this study, um, but actually I'm really, really interested <laughs> in that. Uh, I mean, I think there is, there is work, particularly in, in dementia and aged care around um, care and care stress. The, the specifics of being a healthcare professional and being a carer or a relative I haven't read anything on it, but I think you're right. I think that is absolutely mm. fascinating. And that's a real dilemma, isn't it, for any of us that mm. are nurses or if there's any other healthcare professionals listening. It's a real dilemma. You know, when you you go to with, with your loved one to the hospital setting, you know, and, and I'm sure most of us have done it at some point, you're desperate to tell them that you know what's going on. <laughs> You're desperate, mm, to, mm, you're desperate mm. to try and use the system to your benefit. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know, to try and fast track through. But but if you do, you can actually get the opposite reception. Mm, and mm. it and so it's really hard to know at what point. And, and it's usually when I start to see um, things being missed or um, a, a good example, you know, my, my, my son, um, a few years ago, uh, just before me, actually had a mountain bike accident too. I'm not a good advocate oh, no. for mountain biking, am I? But <laughs> no. he ended up he ended up in a pediatric ward. That's you know he's 16 and in a pediatric ward, 15, 16, big boy in a pediatric ward. And um, yeah, I stayed there overnight with him. And the things I heard from the nurses' station, oh, absolutely horrified me. You know, I heard all about their personal lives, including their yeah. relationship lives, including what they thought about different patients and relatives. And I'm like, mm-hmm. don't they realize I'm in earshot? It really woke me yeah. up to the journey as a relative um, and then how much that can undermine your confidence in the nurses mm. and mm. how how you can undermine your 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 perception of their professionalism when they're talking about their personal relationship lives in front of in a pediatric in a pediatric ward uh, where the children and the relatives can hear so i think mm. i think there is, there is you know but once again i would turn around and say to myself should they be behaving any differently whether I'm there as a nurse relative versus I'm a non-nurse relative. Mm. Yeah. And and should I behave any differently? And I don't have the answers for that. No, no. Oh, well, maybe there's our next 
project at some point. <laughs> yeah, possibly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, your current study looking at the experiences and challenges of either being a patient or um, caring for a nurse patient, uh, yeah, truly will be fascinating. So um, we wish you all the best with that and certainly encourage anyone who's listening to follow the link, which we'll put up, and um, to complete the survey. No, th- thanks for that. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk mm-hmm. about it. And for any listeners, um, yeah, uh, you know, please do the survey if you want to share your experiences. I, I think um, I would expect many people have very unique experiences, but I think mm-hmm. that's, that's what we'd really like to capture here is those unique mm-hmm. experiences. Now, so just to sort of start to wind up, because I'm conscious that, you know, time is moving on. Um, so now that both your son and yourself have had quite major mountain bike accidents, <laughs> um, have you, and I won't ask if you've learned from this, um, but what do you do to unwind and have you changed, you know, sort of specialties from mountain biking to anything a little bit less um, dangerous or do you still like to go out and give it a blast? Uh, yeah, I'm probably embarrassed to say that I, I still still ride as many days a week as I can. I've also ride <laughs> motocross and moto enduro. I've never been hurt doing that because you tend to have a lot more protective gear on. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to stop being yourself. I think the biggest difference is that I probably don't leap off three meter cliffs anymore. I tend to keep the wheels closer yeah. to the ground. So I have adapted, realized that um, I don't bounce anymore. I crumble. Um, and uh, you know, I really don't want to bring that stress on the family again. So I tend to keep the wheels close to the ground. But it's very hard to stop doing the things you love doing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just feel sorry for your poor wife. And um, yeah, it's yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and 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 I think you know that that's important too. I, I know the ICU that I was in did a follow-up study and uh, followed up with me at three months but also followed up with my wife and I thought I was really pleased Mm. they did that that they were very interested in her experience Um, Mm. and you know and that's what I've been really interested in in our HOSFAM study hospital and family study been really interested in that experience of the 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 loved one because Mm. often patients on a journey that they're going to get you work their way through, but the, the, often it's the loved ones that are picking up all the pieces and all the stress and care mm. stress. And I think it's really important to see patients as part of this family unit and community unit mm. and not mm. separate the patient from their, 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 their family and loved ones. And when they're mm. discharged, you know, they, 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 it, the journey really only begins when you're discharged for the yeah. family because when you're in ICU and you've been cared for um, yes there's stress and uncertainty and everything that goes with that but the physical care the 24-hour mm-hmm. care burden is not necessarily on the relative but when that relative comes home um, mm. that burden goes you know it's a phenomenal burden on the family yeah yeah and I think often the family are kind of the forgotten victims of the whole experience aren't they they are they are and I, and i've been i recognize that in my bereavement study because uh control and when we did the bereavement study the controls actually were uh, relatives of patients who um who'd been orthopedic patients mm. um so they'd had a hospital experience but not an acute intensive mm. care experience but they were still consumers they were still in the same trajectory of the same time frame from discharge so that we were what we were trying to control for was hospitalization 
in doing mm. that study. Um, and what I noticed in many of those controls, I, I sometimes came home and said to my wife, you know what? Um, I, I actually think sometimes the controls are actually more stressed than the bereaved mm. relatives. Mm. Um, so care of stress is real. And any listeners that, that have experienced it or are experienced it absolutely know what I'm talking about. It's a, mm. it's, it's a, a full-on stress. Mm. yeah oh look there's so much we could talk about but i do think i should let you go and carry on with your day um thank you so much for your time and uh, yeah just encourage everyone to go and complete the survey if they can so thank you so much no thank you thank you for the opportunity thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed that such a fascinating conversation particularly tom's thoughts and his research around broken heart syndrome and anticipatory grief. And can you imagine being a patient in the ICU? What an experience. Remember, if you have been, you can participate in Tom's survey. Take good care, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy or who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success. Music.